Well, again, I want to say Happy Easter. We are gathered here today to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. For those of you who may be new today, maybe you're asking, who are these people? Well, we're Touchstone Christian Fellowship. We are a Christian, non-denominational church. We've been here in the Sacramento community since October of 2004. We've been meeting in this facility here since July of 2016. We finally finished all the remodeling work. Maybe you've been driving by here thinking, man, those people just keep working away and uh, the place keeps changing a little bit. Well, we're pretty much done now, unless someone comes up with some idea that I'm not aware of. I think we're done. Uh, our agenda is very simple. We're trying to follow Jesus Christ. That's it. If this is your first time to Touchstone, I want to extend a special welcome to you and hope you'll find a permanent home here with us. If you are like I was before I was a follower of Jesus Christ and a regular church attender, you may be a little nervous about what's going to be expected of you today, and I want to try to put you at ease. We're a low-pressure establishment here at Touchstone, and that means, first, that we're not going to make you stand up in front of everyone and introduce yourselves. We know that that is one of the biggest fears that anybody has, public speaking. We don't want you, you know, to freak out on us. And second, we're not going to ask you to empty your pockets and your purses into the offering plate. We won't even pass an offering plate. How's that? So please just enjoy the morning. We're glad you're here. Uh, Touchstone regulars, please take it upon yourselves to welcome and introduce yourselves to new people today. And if you're wondering who the new people are, if you don't know that person, that's a new person. So introduce yourself to that person. Now some of you guys are going, you know, I don't recognize those people because their mask is on. It's okay if you introduce yourself to someone you already know. You guys will figure that out as you have a conversation with each other. Remember, I'm your brother, dude. It's like, oh yeah. Didn't recognize you with the mask on. Well, let's get into the Bible study for this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, you can flip over to John chapter 20. It tells the story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just to kind of set the stage here. The followers of Jesus had believed that he was the fulfillment of their centuries of hopes and prayers and dreams. He was supposed to be the great rescuer of their people from the tyranny of their oppressors. He was supposed to usher in a new era of prosperity for the Jewish people. He was to be their great king who would lead them to victory over their enemies. But with Jesus dead now, hanging from a Roman crucifixion cross, executed like a common low-life criminal, their hopes and their dreams are shattered. Now, if the story of Jesus had ended with his death, then it would be one of the most sad and tragic you could imagine for those who had put their hopes in him. But the story of Jesus doesn't end with his death because he didn't stay dead. The mission of Jesus was not to free the nation of Israel from Roman tyranny and to make them prosperous and powerful. His mission was to save the broken lives that are in this broken world, and that includes all of us. 
Jesus said in Mark 10.45 that he didn't come to be served, but to die as a ransom for us. In John 10.10, he said he came to give us a full life, or to use the words from the song earlier, he came so that we cannot just survive, but so that we can thrive. Without the resurrection, the life of Jesus Christ might have been considered noble, but in the end, he was just a man badly misunderstood by the people of his generation. But with the resurrection, Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God, worthy to be worshipped and served. The resurrection means that all that Jesus taught and promised is true. He's the Savior of the world. His death is a sacrifice for all of our sins. He can give us new life now and forever. He is our great intercessor before God. He makes a personal relationship, life-changing type of relationship, possible for us with God. We can be resurrected from the dead and live forever like Him. Well, let's look at this story that holds so much hope. Verse 1 says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciples, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. It says, early on the first day of the week. It's early Sunday morning. We usually think of the first day of the week in our time and culture as Monday, but in the Jewish culture, people think about Saturday being the Sabbath, and everything revolves around the Sabbath. For them, the first day of the week is Sunday, not Monday. Mary Magdalene is the only person mentioned by name here by John, but we know from the other gospel accounts that there were two other women with her, Salome and Mary, the mother of James. Now, Jesus' mother's name was also Mary, but she is not one of these women. There are lots of Marys in the New Testament stories. This was apparently a very popular name in that day. She's not here. These are other Marys. And I just want to make sure that we're not getting our Marys confused. Mark's account tells us that the women had been present when Joseph and Nicodemus put Jesus in the tomb. So they knew where the body of Jesus was supposed to be. But when they get to the tomb this, this morning, they find that the big stone has been removed from the entrance and the body of Jesus is gone. So panic-stricken, they run to the disciples to tell them that the body of Jesus is missing. And in verse 3 it says, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb, and this other disciple is John, who also happens to be the one writing the Gospel of John. He's this other disciple. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, I don't know if John needed to point that out. <laughs> Doesn't seem very nice. Says he bent over and he looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but didn't go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him, huffing and puffing, <laughs> and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped 
around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, see, there he goes again. I mean, it sounds like he's rubbing it in a little bit to me. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. So Peter and John, they run to the tomb to confirm what the women have claimed. And when they get there and look inside, they discover that it is indeed true. The body of Jesus is gone. But his burial linens are there. The end of verse 8 says about John, it says that he saw and believed. Jesus had told his disciples a number of times that he would be killed and then be raised back to life. But the disciples had refused to believe him. They assumed he must have been talking figuratively in some way about something that they didn't really understand. But when John sees these burial linens there and the body of Jesus gone, he remembers now what Jesus had been telling them before. And he now begins to believe to be true what he had before thought impossible. Peter and John, they left to ponder these things. Mary, she stayed behind weeping at the tomb. And after a bit, it says that she looked into the tomb again and she saw what she thought were two men in dazzling white sitting where the body of Jesus had been. They weren't men, though. They were angels. In verse 13, it continues the story. It says, they, these two angels, these two men, what she thinks are men, they ask her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to Mary, said, said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Roboni, which means teacher. The last person that she expects to ever see again is Jesus himself. And when she's looking at this man through these tear-blurred eyes, she doesn't recognize who it is. She thinks it's the gardener and hopes that maybe he can tell her where the body of Jesus has been put. But then when Jesus says to her her name, she knows instantly who this is. See, there's something oddly fundamental and deep inside of us about hearing our name spoken. When Jesus says, Mary, it cuts through her tears, her grief, her deep feelings of loss, and it touches her heart. This is unmistakably the voice of her Jesus. She knows immediately who it is. In verse 17, Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It says, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. This statement by Jesus, it has caused some confusion. First, no matter what Jesus means, one thing is clear. He is not a ghost 
a phantom, a vision, a hallucination, an idea, some immaterial thing of some kind. He has physicality to him. Mary can touch him. She can take hold of him. Next, let me clarify what he is not saying. He's not saying that Mary can't touch him for fear of contaminating him or harming him in some way. He is the resurrected Christ. There is nothing that can harm him or contaminate him in any way. In fact, I'm certain that the moment Mary recognized who Jesus was, she grabbed onto him with a death grip and didn't want to get didn't want to ever let him go again. She had lost her beloved Jesus once she was not going to lose him again. Some English translations translate the original Greek as do not cling to me rather than do not hold on to me, which makes what Jesus is saying a little easier to understand. I, I believe what Jesus means is that things are not going to be the same as they were before. He's not going to continue to be with Mary and the others in the same way anymore. The Holy Spirit will be with them in a continuous way, but Jesus himself is going to return to the Father. Jesus gives Mary a message to deliver to the disciples. It's interesting to note that Jesus calls them brothers here. This is the very first time that Jesus calls the disciples brothers in the Gospel of John. A new relationship has been established with and through Jesus. We can be his brothers and sisters now. We can be members of the family of God. God can be and is our Father. Jesus says here, my Father and your Father. My God and your God. 18, it says, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I've seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I love Mary's declaration that she makes to the to the disciples. She says, I have seen the Lord. The Lord is alive. Jesus is alive. Well, the scene now switches in verse 19. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, so now it's evening on this same Sunday, when the disciples were gathered with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So we have the disciples. They're huddled together in a room with the door locked. Their leader, Jesus, had been arrested and then executed a few days earlier. They are deeply afraid that they're going to be next. They're afraid that the next knock on the door is going to be the police to drag them off, to be executed like they had done with Jesus. So here they are, nervous and jumpy, hearts beating like rabbits, and all of a sudden, Jesus is standing in the room with them, and he says, peace be with you. I think at first, it was anything but peace. They're like, Duh! freaking out until he convinces them that it's really him. And when they see Jesus standing there among them, alive, it blows their minds. What they are now witnessing is forcing them to rethink everything that they thought they knew about how the world works. He's alive. He shows them his wounds from the crucifixion to convince them 
that this really is him, the same person that they saw crucified, hanging on the cross dead. It says Jesus entered that room even though the door was locked. Now we're not told exactly how that happened, but the resurrected body of Jesus has qualities that his pre-resurrection body didn't have. His resurrected body has form and substance. He can touch and be handled. He can eat food. But he can also do things that we can't do with these bodies of ours, like move through what we think are solid objects. His resurrected body was a super body. It had all of the qualities of our bodies and more. It could do everything that our bodies can do and more. Now, at a time when superheroes with super abilities seem to be on every TV show and in every movie these days, this should not be hard for you to get hold of and to accept. Jesus was the one true superhero. Verse 21, it said, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Jesus told his disciples back in John 14, 12, that he would continue his good work in this world through them after he was gone. Now he affirms that and tells his disciples that in the same way that the Father had sent him into the world, he's now sending them, and by extension, he's sending all of his followers through all of time, including you and me, who are followers of Jesus, into the world to carry on his work. And Jesus empowers his disciples to do this work by giving them the Holy Spirit. What he does with the disciples here by breathing the Holy Spirit on them it's a precursor to the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit that would take place in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. John the Baptist, you might remember he said about Jesus at the beginning of his ministry that he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit, and we see the beginning of that taking place here. Now the way verse 23 is worded, it can be confusing. I think the best way to understand what is intended to be said here is this. Jesus is not giving his disciples authority to withhold God's forgiveness from people. He's giving them the authority to proclaim God's forgiveness being available through Jesus Christ. And think about what incredible privilege it is to be able to tell others that they can be forgiven. On an experiential level, guilt can be an overwhelming burden in our life. The, the weight of it can crush us, rob us of joy and peace. On a theological level, the whole human race is separated from God, excluded from a relationship with God because of our sin. To be able to tell a person that they can be forgiven is a tremendous privilege. It is such good news to give someone. Jesus died for your sins. You can be forgiven. You can be free. You can receive a full pardon before God. Here's an illustration that I think might help us understand what Jesus was saying to his disciples here. Imagine Jesus is the great knight who has stormed the evil castle of the dark lord and 
fought through all of the bad guys down into the deep, dark dungeon that is holding all of the people captive in cells. And Jesus takes the keys and he unlocks your cell, setting you free, and then he hands the keys to you and he tells you to go and unlock the other cells and set the other people free. He didn't give us authority to pick and choose which cell doors we will unlock. He's given us the authority to proclaim freedom to all the captives, to unlock all of the cell doors. The great night has overthrown the dark Lord. Be free. That's what he's telling his disciples. Verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So for some reason, Thomas, one of the twelve disciples, was not with the others when Jesus showed up in their midst that first Sunday evening. Maybe they had sent him out to get groceries for the group or something. We don't know. When he gets back, the others tell him, you won't believe who showed up while you were gone. Jesus. And he answers them, you're right, I don't. <laughs> I'm not sure I would either if I were Thomas. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came, stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Thomas is often portrayed as a hard-hearted, shallow doubter who gets put in his place by Jesus, but that's not a very accurate description of Thomas and how this plays out. In reality, Thomas was an extremely committed and courageous follower of Jesus. He just happens to have been in the wrong place at the wrong time when Jesus made his first appearance to the group of disciples. I'm sure that if Thomas had been there that first time, he would have been on board as much as all of the rest of them are. You might remember, for example, back in John eleven sixteen, Thomas, he was the one of all of the disciples who spoke up and he was willing to die with Jesus at the time. Thomas's reaction to seeing the resurrected Jesus is the clearest and most faith-filled response of any of the disciples when he says, my Lord and my God. Thomas, he understands what the resurrection of Jesus means. He is my Lord and my God. See, although he's often referred to as doubting Thomas by people, I don't think that label is deserved for Thomas. 29, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas and the other disciples, they had this unique opportunity to see and touch the resurrected Jesus. 
Jesus says to those who believe in him without having seen him are especially blessed. That includes you and me. And finally, verse 30. The chapter ends with these verses. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These last two verses of chapter 20 are John's closing words for the whole book. The stories that John has included in this book, the gospel according to John. They're not a comprehensive account of all that Jesus did during his earthly life and ministry. What we have is just a small sampling of all that Jesus did. John tells us in the next chapter, in verse 21 of chapter 20, uh, verse 25 of chapter 21, that if everything that Jesus did was written down, he, John, wondered if there would be room in the world to hold all of the books that would be written. And John was obviously exaggerating to make his point. But you understand what he was getting at. John, led by the Holy Spirit, He selected these particular stories in the Gospel of John to include in his book so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we can have life in him. What we have here in the Gospel of John is not all of the evidence available to show that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the fulfillment of ancient prophecies, the incarnate God who dwelt among us for a time, who was crucified, who was resurrected from the dead on the third day, and now lives forever interceding for his followers. What we have is enough evidence for us to have saving faith in Jesus as the Christ, the one who came to save us in and from our broken lives. In closing, Jesus can give us a new life now that's lived for something larger and more fulfilling than our own selfish aims. He can give us a new ethic to live by that pleases God and ultimately pleases us too. He can give us the hope and the promise of resurrection and eternal life. With resurrection, Jesus Christ doesn't just free our mortal soul from a diseased and dying body. He promises us a new body like his own resurrected body. We'll not just be disrobed from a dead body. We'll be clothed with a new one, a better one, a glorious one. Philippians 3.20 says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. For those who have the hope of resurrection through Jesus Christ, this present life is as bad as it is ever going to get. Things are only going to get better, a lot better. For those who don't have the hope of resurrection through Jesus Christ, this present life is it. This is as good as it's going to get. 
you can have the hope of resurrection, the hope for a new life, both now and forever. God loves you. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this world to rescue you. John 3, 16, that familiar verse that's in every sporting event up in the crowd somewhere, someone's holding up a sign with this Bible verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Believing in Jesus Christ, having faith in Jesus Christ. It means believing he's the ultimate answer to our problems and that you are committing yourself to following him with your life. It's a whole life commitment to him. That's what believing and having faith in him is about. Believing in and following Jesus is not like looking up your horoscope and seeing interesting parallels with your life or imagining that the fortune that you found in a cookie might actually come true. Believing in Jesus is of such a character that you center your whole life around him. You trust your life and your future to him. If you want your sin forgiven, your guilt before God taken away, have the hope of resurrection, receive this new life of Christ in you. I say you would join me in this very simple prayer to begin that in your own life. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for my sins. I believe in your resurrection. Give me your new life and make me into the person you want me to be. I'm going to follow you for the rest of my life. Amen. If you prayed that prayer and you really meant it, then you've begun this new life as a child of God. And I want to encourage you to start following Jesus with your life. And I'll see you next Sunday, right here. So let's bow our heads for our closing prayer together. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ, that he is the fulfillment of your great promise to save us. to save us from ourselves and each other and all that has gone wrong in this world, to give us a new life, a new future, to give us hope, to give us purpose, that we can thrive, not just survive. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Touch our lives and go with us today. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.